0: Direct your attention this morning to the seventh chapter of Isaiah, there in the middle of the Old Testament. We'll read the first 17 verses of Isaiah 7. (coughs) I chose this text for Christmas Sunday because it brings together our morning and our evening sermons of late. Matthew, whose gospel we've been studying in the morning services, you remember, cites Isaiah 7, 14 and declares that this promise that a virgin would bear a son was fulfilled in the birth of Jesus to his virgin mother Mary. You find that at the end of Matthew chapter 1. What is more, this particular prophecy has certain features that we have learned in our evening studies in biblical eschatology or the Bible's doctrine of the future are characteristic of the way the Bible forecasts the future. Now, this was a time of great crisis in the history of Israel and Judah, and especially of the southern kingdom, Judah, and the royal house of David. The date is approximately 735 B.C., before Christ. Judah was facing peril on two fronts. Pressure was being applied to the entire Levant by the Assyrians with their imperial ambitions, and that threat, in turn, had led the northern kingdom, Israel, the 10 northern tribes, to, an effect, uh, to effect an alliance with Syria, ordinarily her enemy. They then sought Judah's support in hopes of presenting the Assyrians with a united military front. When Judah showed herself uninterested in this anti-Assyrian alliance, Israel and Syria began exerting their own pressure. Judah was thus a small country being threatened at at once by a great power that threatened the entire region and by small powers nearby who wanted her to join with them in resisting the great power. This sort of thing has happened times without number in human history and was a commonplace of 20th century political and military history. Think of Eastern Europe, first during the days of Nazi Germany and then during the time of the Soviet Union. So we begin to read at uh, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 1. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram, Aram is another name for Syria, and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Syria and Israel's first effort to force Judah into their anti Assyrian alliance failed to take the capital, and so did not really succeed, though they did kill thousands of Judah's soldiers, and carried off many people captive either to Damascus, the capital of Syria, or to Samaria, the capital of Israel. You can read all about that in 2 Corinthians 20, or I'm sorry, 2 Chronicles chapter 28 verses 5 to 8. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. A second invasion by the Syria-Israel alliance then followed with the express intent of destroying the Davidic dynasty and replacing Judah's king with one of their own, as you'll read in verse 6. Ahaz, Judah's particularly evil king as it happens, is the house of David at this moment, and what he does will now prove decisive for the future of the dynasty. <coughs> what shook the people of Judah, by the way, was not news of the alliance between Syria and Israel. That was 10 years old by this time. What frightened them was the news of troop movements and the realization that another invasion was was pending. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son Shear Jashub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the washerman's field. The name of Isaiah's son, Shear Jashub, means a remnant shall return. It's a name symbolic of the Lord's promise that he would never so desert his covenant people that they would cease to exist. He would ensure that a remnant of his people would always survive. However, it's a name also symbolic of God's impending judgment because The whole people will not survive, only a remnant from that people. Prophets, as you remember, did this sort of thing to embody their message and to make it public and to make it constant in an age before pictures and our modern media. Isaiah's son was by his very name a sermon walking around. Isaiah's second son, Meir Shalal Hashbaz, about whom you will read in chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, was another sermon. His name in J.B. Phillips' inspired translation is, Quick Pickings, Easy Prey," and amounts to a prophecy of Assyria's impending destruction of both Syria and Israel, the northern tribes. Ahaz would have been at the aqueduct because he was supervising preparations for the coming siege until Hezekiah built his famous tunnel to carry water into the city, Jerusalem's water supply was above ground, and so it was vulnerable to being cut off (coughs) in a siege. Say to him, when you reach Ahaz there at the upper pool on the road to the washerman's field, say to him, be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of those these two smoldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and of the son of Remaliah. Aram, Ephraim, another name for the northern kingdom, and Remaliah's son have plotted your ruin, saying, Let us invade Judah. Let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make the son of Tabil king over it. We don't know who the son of Tabil, Ben Tabil, is, though clearly he was either a foreigner or he was someone who would have been under the influence of the foreigners, uh, the Syrians and the Israelites. The plan is to place their own man on Judah's throne. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says, it will not take place, it will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus and the head of Damascus is only Rezin. Within 65 years Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria and the head of Samaria is only Remaliah's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith you will not stand at all. We learn in Kings and Chronicles that uh, Ahaz was under pressure, not only from the circumstances, but from his advisors and others to join in the Syria-Israel alliance. It seemed the wisest thing to do to many in Judah at the time. Isaiah tells him not to join that alliance. Those two nations, he says, are a spent force. They will never be able to stand up to mighty Assyria. The solution to Judah's plight in any case is not political alliances but faith in God. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world is what uh, Isaiah is saying here. Israel, here called Ephraim, chose the path of trusting in herself, in her own endeavors, in her own machinations and so she sealed her doom. The same thing will happen to Judah if Judah makes the same mistake. That's Isaiah's warning at the end of that section in verse 9. Her only hope is to trust the Lord. Remember, Hezekiah would do that some years later. And the Lord delivered him magnificently from the hand of an Assyrian army, which went home and never came back. The 65 years until Israel is no more (coughs) does not refer to the Assyrian conquest of the northern kingdom which happened much sooner than that in 721, probably, but it refers to 671 B.C., when the Assyrian king Esarhaddon imported foreign settlers into the area formerly inhabited by the ten northern tribes. At that point, those who had been deported by the Assyrians and scattered throughout their imperial possessions had no land to return to, had they been able to return, and so ceased to exist as a separate nation or national entity or people. Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. The second message (coughs) the Lord gave to Ahaz through Isaiah took the form of encouraging him to trust in the Lord, even of promising the particular encouragement of a sign. In this case, for Ahaz to ask for a sign would have been a measure of believing commitment. The opportunity has not yet been lost for faith to act and to rescue the situation, for the Lord is willing to hear an answer and do anything, the deepest depths or the highest heights, to deliver his people. But, as one commentator helpfully puts it, Ahaz refuses to put the Lord to the test and thereby shrouds his unwillingness to face the spiritual realities of the situation in a veil of piety. There's a kind of asking for a sign that is sinful and an act of unbelief as when the Pharisees were constantly pestering the Lord for a sign. But to refuse a sign when the Lord offers one is proof that one does not want to believe. What Ahaz should have said is, if God is for us, who can be against us? And then he should have sanctified his life and the life of his people to make his prayer a sincere and <coughs> committed act of faith in the Lord his God. But as the narrative of both Kings and Chronicles demonstrate, behind Ahaz's pious talk lay a plan that he had formed to outwit his nearby enemies by making friends with the deadliest enemy of them all, Assyria herself. This is Ahaz's effort at realpolitik, and it would prove a catastrophe. What kind of friend Assyria would prove, Isaiah will indicate in verse 17. Then Isaiah said, Here now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. The sign is no longer being offered, it's being promised, and not as an invitation to faith, but as a proof of God's condemnation and displeasure. Isaiah, or rather Ahaz, could have chosen any sign. This is a sign the Lord has chosen. The birth of Emmanuel would confirm Isaiah's message. And the absolute necessity of trusting in the Lord, which Ahaz would not do. He will eat curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. As we learn in verse 21, curds and honey are not the same thing as milk and honey. This is the food of the poor living in a devastated land, eking out an existence. Emmanuel will be born into Judah's poverty and trouble. But before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. Now we come to a lesson we learned a number of times in our studies in biblical prophecy. Prophecies in the Bible regularly compress time. This is called the prophetic perspective or prophetic foreshortening. The impression here seems to be of an imminent birth, even perhaps that Ahaz would see this child who was to be born, or at least that the child would be born during the present crisis. These two nations are going to be destroyed relatively soon, but obviously the child was not born during the present crisis. It would be many centuries before Emmanuel would appear in the world. But there are a number of indications in the context that suggest that the fulfillment of the Emmanuel promise would not take place until the more remote future. First, though you cannot tell it in the English translation, the you in verse 14 is plural, not singular. As verse 13 indicates, the Lord is now not talking to Ahaz alone as an individual, but to the entire house of David. Isaiah sees Ahaz as representative of the erosion of faith and spiritual commitment among Judah's kings, and he sees that erosion continuing and leading inexorably to doom. So the prophecy, as any Hebrew speaker would have heard it, was addressed to others besides Ahaz himself. Second, there are other statements in the larger context that suggest that the child to be born would not come until other things had happened first. In chapter 9, verse 1, the birth of the child is forecast as something to occur only in the future. In chapter 8, we learn that God's people will first be scattered and then regathered, but Isaiah knows that that will not be the result of what the Assyrians do, and says that frequently in his prophecy. Characteristically, Isaiah does nothing to remove the tension created between the notes of immediacy and remoteness, imminence and delay, this kind of foreshortening in which the distant future is portrayed as a part of the immediate future, in which a single future prospect is portrayed as near at hand and is predicted in its wholeness, which over time proves to be a complex series of events that unfold over time, is so characteristic of biblical prophecy as virtually to become its signature. Prophecies of the Messiah's coming and his reign, such as we have in Isaiah chapter 2,000 years ago now. You're told in the New Testament (coughs) that we are living in the last days, but those last days have now lasted two millennia. But Jesus also told parables about a king who went on a journey and was a long time in returning and people mistook the significance of that long delay. As we've learned in our studies of biblical eschatology, this mixing of the immediate present and the remote future in a single vision serves to emphasize the meaning of things, the significance of what is to come to pass. The interest of the biblical writer is in that significance. Rather than in the chronological detail, which is, after all, more a matter of curiosity than theological and spiritual importance. So here we have the forecast of judgment and deliverance, though they occur, in fact, seven centuries apart. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your Father a time unlike Any since Ephraim broke away from Judah, he will bring the king of Assyria. Taken together, these verses say there is doom on Judah's immediate horizon. Poverty, divine wrath, military and political catastrophe. That is true, even though the enemies that Ahaz feared the most, Syria and Israel in alliance against her, will soon be no more and prove, in fact, no real threat at all. But there is something else looming on the horizon, the hope of something better in time to come, the birth of the Messiah. The importance of Him and of His coming will be indicated by the remarkable circumstances of His birth. The message of this sign, therefore, is the message of the name of Isaiah's first son, Shear Jashub. God will judge and reject the faithless generations of His people, but He will save the remnant. He will deliver. His people who trust in Him. Our Father in heaven, now we take this text to heart and mind, white-hot as it comes to us from those terrible and perilous times in the history of God's people in the mid-eighth century B.C. Help us, O God, to feel the weight of these words as they were thundered by Isaiah the prophet in those days of calamity and doom. Help us to understand the great significance of them for ourselves and for human life today. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. We have before us one of the most memorable and celebrated prophecies of the coming of the Messiah in all the ancient scriptures. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and we'll call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. <coughs> it is not to be sure a prophecy in isolation. Chapters 7 through 11 of the prophecy of Isaiah have sometimes been called the Book of Emmanuel, and contain not only the prophecy of his remarkable birth to a virgin mother, as here, but many other things about him. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom forever. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb, the calf and the lion and the yearling together and the child will lead them. As we read in chapter 8, verse 8, this Emmanuel will be a royal figure. The land will belong to him All of this and more you learn concerning this great person to come, the Messiah, in chapters 7 through 11 of Isaiah. But I want to draw your attention to the way in which the historical context of this prophecy sheds important light on its meaning and its significance. When the wonderful birth of the Messiah is offered as a sign to those whose hearts are hard and at a time when mortal danger threatens the life of God's people, the issues of life and salvation in Jesus Christ become all the more clear. We're forced to reckon with them, face the music, as it were. The context of the prophecy poses this single alternative. The world is always looking for a variety of alternatives. And Isaiah comes to the point There is but one, there is God's way or there is man's, the way of Ahaz or the way of Emmanuel. And you can develop that thought in various ways here in this text. First there is the alternative between divine wrath and judgment on the one hand and love and salvation from God on the other. Here Ahaz is offered deliverance and when it is refused he is promised catastrophe. Emmanuel, to Ahaz, is a sign of rejected salvation and certain judgment. Interestingly, you have this point reiterated in the gospel narratives of Christ's birth. When Mary sung her song of praise, after learning the role she would play in the coming of the Messiah, she thought to put these lines in her hymn. Lines I think most of us would confess we would probably not have thought to include. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. Bringing down rulers from their thrones is the very context in which the birth of the Messiah was prophesied in Isaiah 7.14. So it's not surprising that Simeon, when he saw the baby Jesus, Emmanuel, in the temple prophesied that this child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that is spoken against. The sign again. Christ is a sign and one that many will reject, refuse to see, and speak against. He is a public demonstration of how God deals with human beings, and there are many human beings in the world who do not appreciate will not submit to the way God has of dealing with mankind. There's a division that takes place when men are face to face with Jesus Christ. When his birth was prophesied centuries before, it was part of God's judgment pronounced against an unbelieving and wicked king. And when he came into the world, his appearance was salvation to some, but it was doom to the unbelieving among the people. Some welcomed him with joy, others opposed him and eventually murdered him. He was a sign they rejected as surely as Ahaz rejected the sign seven centuries before when his coming was prophesied. A stone they stumbled over as he had. The true condition of their hearts was revealed as it had been in Ahaz's case. In other words, in the context of Isaiah 7, in the terms of that day and time, Jesus is the alternative to the Assyrians. One may expect one fate or the other, depending upon one's view of the sign of Emmanuel. The Assyrians destroyed the Jews who trusted in them. Jesus gave life forever to those who believed in him. That single alternative faces us today. Second, there is the alternative between present appearances and the true the real condition of one's life and prospect. For a few years, it seemed to Ahaz, not only that he could deflect the danger posed by his enemies, but that he had done so. He thought he had found a way, as we read in Kings and Chronicles, nothing too terrible had happened to him yet, and he had beaten back Aram and Israel, though with some serious losses, and thought he had guaranteed his future by his appeal to the Assyrians. Soon his hopes for better things had crumbled to dust. God had brought an end to his delusion that he could manage this matter by his own machinations. Ahaz feared other nations more than he feared what God thought about what he was doing. His daily problems were much more real and important to him than God's verdict on his behavior. He did not tremble at God's word even when Isaiah brought it to him directly and promised God's judgment and wrath for his unbelief. People nowadays are the same way. They're much more concerned about what's happening in Iraq or what's happening on the stock market than they are concerned about what God thinks about their lives and what judgment he is passing on their behavior and how seriously he takes their lack of interest in his word. They have chosen the deceitful pleasures, the Bible calls them, the deceitful pleasures of sin, those pleasures that seem to offer so much, at least in the immediate future, and they have not yet paid for their choice, and they imagine, like Ahaz did for a short time, that they will never pay for his choice. And contrarily, it seems a long time to wait seven centuries for a promise to be fulfilled. And nowadays, in many Christian lives, it seems like a long time to wait for God's vindication in the midst of one's troubles. But those who waited were not disappointed. And they are long since in heaven where the disappointments of their lives have long since been forgotten. You can have the Assyrians now and may for a time seem to profit from your choice, eventually come misery, exile, and slavery. Or you can wait for Jesus Christ, difficult as that waiting may be, uncertain as the outcome may be by anything that you can see as you trust in the Word of God, and you will find eventual joy and peace and life forever. Ahaz wouldn't wait, and he got a brief period of seeming success, followed by eternal catastrophe. Simeon waited his whole long life for the consolation of Israel and for his pains. He got difficulties, but then he also got the sight of the Son of God, the opportunity to hold him in his arms, and soon thereafter, a joyful welcome into the eternal city. The choice, you see, is the same now as it was then, appearance or reality. Immediate peace and pleasure, however imperfect and insubstantial and disappointing in many ways, bought at the expense of eventual doom or eternal peace and fellowship with God. Third, in the text, there is this alternative between two life principles, sight and faith unbelief and belief. Ahaz could see Aram, Syria, and could see Israel. He could see their armies on the march. He could see their plans. He could see mighty Assyria and its designs on the entire territory of which Judah was a small part. He saw a way forward for himself through an alliance with the empire, a way of protecting Judah and his own throne from nearby enemies. He was invited to trust the Lord his God, and a promise that had been made to him instead. And he was promised that if he would trust in God's promise, neither the Syrian-Israelite alliance nor even mighty Assyria could touch him. But Ahaz could see none of that. He thought he could manage the situation without God's help and certainly without submitting himself to God's rule. There were, after all, a number of sins that God forbade. If Ahaz was going to take God at his word, he was going to have to consecrate his life. He was going to have to change his behavior. Ahaz was a wicked man. The prospect of living with the Assyrians on top was more congenial to him than that of living in conformity to God's law. He had mixed the true faith of Israel with the paganism around him because he found paganism much easier, it always is, and he found its pleasures were things he did not have to wait for. Jesus was the alternative. Trust what you yourself can figure out and achieve or trust his word and promise. There was no other choice in Ahaz's day, there is no other choice in ours. Neil Postman in his wonderfully insightful book, *Technopoly*, discusses what he calls the great symbol drain by imagining a television commercial for a new California Chardonnay. Jesus is standing alone in a desert oasis. A gentle breeze flutters the leaves of the stately palms behind him. Soft, Mideastern eastern music caresses the air. Jesus holds in his hand a bottle of wine at which he gazes, adoringly. Turning toward the camera, he says, when I transformed water into wine at Cana, this is what I had in mind. Try it today, you'll become a believer. Postman is speaking about the trivialization of symbols in our culture, their lack of power and substance anymore. The adoration of technology, he says, preempts the adoration of anything else. This happens, of course, especially at the behest of commercial interests. Martin Luther King Jr. Day becomes an occasion for furniture store discounts and President's Day for linen sales. And, of course, supremely Christmas becomes the time of year for the greatest commercial activity of all. So it is at the mall that you are listening to angels we have heard on high. And it came upon a midnight clear, and the first Noel. The sign of Christmas fades into the background. It has become the elevator music of our culture. And the commerce steps to the fore. And we have news flashes about how well the merchants are doing this far into the Christmas season. No news flashes at all about Christ and the meaning of the sign of His birth. This is not blasphemy because blasphemy takes the sign seriously. This is something else, trivialization, and perhaps in many cases is done largely unwittingly. But Isaiah 7 comes to us as a stark reminder of the power of this sign of this promised birth now fulfilled. What is at stake in a person's attitude toward this sign is nothing short of his or her eternal life, the wrath of God or his salvation. This Ahaz would not see. The difficulties he faced filled his horizon and he was unwilling to see anything else. And in the same way, it is hard for people to see it through the dazzle of the Christmas lights today. But reality eventually caught up with Ahaz, and reality will catch up with everybody sooner or later. The Bible is not first a book about what you're supposed to do or what you're supposed to think or even what you're supposed to believe. The Bible is first a book about how the world is and what reality is and how life works and what is true whether you like it or not. Only then comes the message of God's deliverance and trust in Him. I know people today are not precisely like Ahaz. They aren't deluding themselves into pretend safety with alliances, alliances with mighty empires, though on a larger scale we do a good bit of precisely that nowadays. We care a great deal about politics, as if our welfare really did depend upon what men can and cannot do for us and will and will not do for us. But in fundamental things, people are like Ahaz, and the situation in which he found himself is a situation in which every human being finds himself or herself sooner or later. I thought of that recently when I read two articles about Elaine Pagel's you may have heard of Elaine Pagels, professor of religion at Princeton University. She's a popular religious figure nowadays and regarded in certain circles as a spokesman for Christianity. You see her often on PBS. The reason is that she purports to demonstrate by her scholarly work that Orthodox Christianity, or what we take to be historic Christianity, was really just one form of Christianity in its early days, and no more authentic a form than other forms that existed at the time. And particularly no more authentic a form of Christianity than Gnosticism, a blend of Christian belief and pagan spirituality which she has made the great object of her professional study. Her favored form of Christianity, in short, is a mixture very like what Ahaz would have favored. The ancient faith of Israel mixed with the paganism of Canaan. Pagel's represents a syncretistic form of Christianity. Christianity mixed with other things, with other things, the chief principles. This is the form of Christianity, by the way, that has often been popular and very often more popular than the real thing. According to Pagel's history is a matter of people or groups exercising power. The Story of the world is the story of power being exercised by one person or one group over others. And the Orthodox in Christian history had the power, so they wrote the history. And that's why we think of Christianity the way we think about it today. The Gospel of John, in her telling of the story was written to refute the Gnostic work, the Gospel of Thomas. And because John's party had the power, John got into the Bible and the Gospel of Thomas was banished as heresy. Might have been the other way around, but that's power for you. You can see why PBS likes this. It is a reconstruction of Christian history that is thoroughly congenial to postmodern ideals. Truth is power, nothing more the assertion of power. Paganism Christianity, is Christianity's equal. People are free to invent whatever religious beliefs they choose because religion is nothing more than the subjective impressions of one's own soul. And the answer to the world's problems is to acknowledge this and bring all the religious traditions of the world into one single harmony. This is Bill Moyers and Joseph Campbell all over again. This is the reconstruction of Christian history by the way that you find in Dan Brown's immensely successful novel The Da Vinci Code that you find in the mall bookstores nowadays. In that story we have the gospel history turned into a thriller, a conspiracy story, a kind of Robert Ludlum sort of story, in which Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene, a rich woman who financed his ministry, but after his death there was no resurrection. After his death The apostles conspired to suppress the truth in order to maintain male dominance. In another postmodern twist, Orthodox Christianity arises out of a determination to destroy an early form of feminism. This is the way Elaine Hagels reads the history. None of that has any basis. In fact, Gnosticism in its Christian guise is much later than the New Testament. The Gospel of Thomas, by the judgment of virtually all of scholarship, was written long after the Gospel of John. And what is more, the early Christians, Orthodox Christians, were hardly power brokers. They were in no position to determine what the rest of the world would believe about Christianity or about anything else. As Augustine would later say, Christianity conquered the world by suffering, not by fighting. But do you see, once again, the same alternative appears. It's Ahaz all over again. The alternatives presented in our text are timeless and apply to every person in every age. Pagels finds her hope in alliances. In her case, she says she's interested in blending Christianity and Buddhism, and she rejects the notion that she must trust in the living God revealed in Holy Scripture, that she must live according to God's Word. And instead was attracted to Gnosticism, she says, because it teaches that spirituality is essentially within oneself. Ahaz could not have said it better. The problem is, however, just as it was in Ahaz's day, the Assyrians are still out there, looming on the horizon, still with us, the great problems of our lives. Our sins and their guilt, the difficulties of living in this fallen world and then death itself are with us and we cannot evade them. Reality bites and no religious sentiment found within oneself or in the paganism roundabout can hold that reality at bay. Only Christ can do that. Only the God-man, Emmanuel, and he will if we trust in him. Modern man's failure is the same. It's the ancient failure of Ahaz. Presented with the word of God and the promise of God, he rejected it for what he could see. And the enormity of that failure and the glorious prospect of infinitely better things are revealed in the fact that the one thing God said that Ahaz needed to know to solve his problems and the problems of his people, the one thing, was that in the future, a virgin would bear a son. And now, 20 centuries after that virgin bore that son, it is still the one thing. Embracing that one historical fact, taking it to heart, and understanding its true significance is the secret to all of life. Remember that, my friends, next time reality bites. Amen.